several generations, and they had a sign or an archway beside their church that had uh, these words inscribed on it. They said, we preach Christ crucified. And so for years, this archway and this sign stood there that had these four words, we preach Christ crucified. And uh, for years it was there, and the church was faithful, and the church did just that. And, and unfortunately, kind of a generation's passed, and uh, a new generation came in, into the church, and they thought, you know what, um, maybe instead of crucified, let's just, let's just focus on the example of Christ. Let, let's not necessarily talk about the crucifixion. Let's not talk about the sacrifice. Let's just focus on the example of Christ and, and gaining salvation through the example of Christ rather than the sacrifice of Christ. And so they decided that instead of we preach Christ cru- crucified, we would set up for we preach Christ. And so they changed the sign and they took off the, the sacrifice part. And uh, it wasn't very long after that that some people were looking at that sign. They're like, you know what? Let's, uh, this idea of, of preaching Jesus seems a little exclusive. It seems a little um, out of touch. And we don't want to make people feel excluded. And, and so let's, let's do more than just preach Jesus. Let's, let's speak into our culture is the term they use. And let's talk about social issues. And let's talk about political discourse. And, and let's talk about all this other stuff. And so they just decided that it would change their logo of their church again. So instead of we preach Jesus, it's just going to be we preach and just leave it at that. And you can imagine that it wasn't very long that that was their logo that they decided, you know, preach is an outdated term and, and people don't like to be preached at and people are preachy and they don't like that. So let's, let's change this sign again. It's time to update and it's time to upgrade this sign. And, and so what if, we, what, if we didn't, what if we didn't preach? What if we just gathered together? And what if we just got together? And what if we just uh, spent our time together with each other? And so they changed their sign once again from re, we preach just to we. And that was it. This was their motto of their church, we. And the whole point of that story was that the moment they took the first word off of that sign, that church was headed downhill fast. The moment that they stopped preaching Christ crucified meant that they really stopped preaching Christ, which means they really stopped preaching, which means they really stopped everything You see, when we stop preaching Christ crucified, we miss the whole point of the story. We miss this beautiful story that God has been weaving through history and weaving through His Word for thousands of years. We forget when we take our eyes off of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ, we miss the gospel entirely. And so I'm going to say that you cannot preach Jesus without preaching Jesus crucified. And so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. And he, he turns his attention um, in chapter 10 to just that subject. The perfect, the sufficient sacrifice of Christ. And he's so adamant about this point. He's given us nine chapters of why Jesus is better than Aaron. And why he's better than the priesthood. And, and then he gets to chapter 10. And, and chapter 10 is kind of this, this climax of the whole thing. Because in chapter 11, he turns his attention a little more from the theological in chapters 1 through 10. And then chapters 11 through 13 is more the practical stuff. And he says, listen, if you miss chapter 10, you miss the whole thing. If you miss the significance of the sacrifice of Christ, then you miss the whole point of everything that we've been talking about. And if we miss the Jesus crucified, if we miss Christ crucified, then we missed him altogether. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to read with me 
in Hebrews chapter 10. I know it's going to seem like a lot. We're going to read 18 verses, but they are beautiful, and they are, they are magnificent verses. And, and we're going to go back through these verses and, and pick them apart, but let's just read them uh, in the context that we have them. So Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1, starts this. It says, Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the actual form of those realities. It can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, they would have stopped being offered, since the worshipers, once purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore... As he was coming into the world, he said, You did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, See, it is written about me in the volume of the scrolls. I have come to do your will, God. And after he said above, You did not want or excuse me, you did not want or delight in sacrifices and offering whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then said, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In verse 11, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifice time after time, which can never take away sin. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of the Father. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Verse 14, for by one sacrifice... He has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with him. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. In verse 17, he added, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. And finally, verse 18, now where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer an offering for sin. Let's pray together. God, this morning, I pray that we speak the name of Jesus. But God, I pray that we speak the name of Jesus crucified. God, I pray this morning that we speak the name with power because of the power of the cross that bought us and redeemed us once and for all. God, this morning we have come to this place with, with different backgrounds and different focuses and different ideas. But God, I pray this morning that we leave here on one accord, in one mind, in one body. God, knowing there is one sacrifice that paid for all past, present, and future, Father. God, I pray that we don't miss the point. God, I pray this morning that we are clear on what your gospel is in this time for each one of us and the gospel that has power to change this world, Father. And so, God, I pray this morning with my heart's desire, if there is one of us sitting in this room or one of us watching online, God, who is not sanctified and washed in your blood this morning, God, I pray that today be the day they do that. God, for the rest of us. 
God, I pray that we are just so overwhelmed by a God who loves us this much. By Jesus who would step out of perfection to give the ultimate sufficient sacrifice for us because you loved us that much, Father. And so, God, in the time that we have, I pray that you speak. I pray that we are eyes open, heart open, mind open, ready to hear you this morning. God, I pray that you speak in a mighty, powerful way. God, so that when we stand again and when we leave this place, God, we will speak the name of Jesus for all the power that it possesses. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Probably like every parent in this room and every parent watching online, April and I have certain phrases and, and certain words that we have banned from our house that we don't allow our kids to use. And, uh, and, and they're not cuss words. Like Every parent probably has that list of these are cuss words and we don't use those words. And, uh, but you probably have other words that are not considered cuss words, but you don't allow your kids to use them. And you may not allow them to use them because um, it just doesn't sound good coming from a kid's mouth. I mean, let's be honest, there are things that... Like, we use and we say all the time, but all of a sudden when your five-year-old says them, you're like, oh, that doesn't sound good coming from a five-year-old's mouth. Right? And so we, we kind of shape around that, and, and maybe it's this attention that we don't need to use those words either. But for some reasons, for some time, it's the reason uh, that we don't let them use the words because they don't really fully understand what those words mean, that, that they don't have a full comprehension of what that means. And so your list may be very different from April and I's list, and, and the words that we allow and don't allow for our kids may be very different than, than you. But one of the words, or I guess phrases, that we have banned in our house is for our kids to, to hold their stomach and say, I'm starving, all right? Now, I don't know if your kids use that phrase, and I won't hold it against your kids or you if you use that phrase, but uh, for April and I, this is a phrase that we just don't allow our kids to use. Uh, and so they, they do it every so often, and they'll be like, man, I am starving. And every time they do that, April and I look at them, and we use the same line. We're like, you are not starving. Right? One, because we know that you ate just like 15 minutes ago. All right, We saw you and we know we, we're the ones who buy the groceries and we know that it's going somewhere. We know the pantry is stocked. We know there's food in the refrigerator. You are not starving. All right? And the other part of it is that April and I spent uh, some time in West Africa and we know not to know starvation personally, but we have seen it. We, we've actually seen kids who are literally starving, who are lucky to get one good meal a day, much less, in, in a, a, excuse me, one good meal a week, much less one good meal a day. And our kids think they're starving if they miss a snack between meals. And so we tell them all the time, listen, you are not starving. You may be hungry, and it's okay to say that I'm hungry, but you are not starving. Trust me, child, you have never been starving a day in your life. And we know that. And, and, and your, your list of words may be very different for us, but, but my guess would be that every one of us sitting in this room and everyone who's watching online, that my guess is that, that what we tell our kids is true for all of us. That most of us sitting in this room have probably never been starving a day in our life. We, we may have been hungry. Our stomach may have been ground and churning. In fact, some of you, um, may, your stomach may be ground and churning right now because you smelled the pancakes and the bacon when you walked in. And, and your stomach is churning so loud that the neighbor sitting next to you can hear it. And you may be that hungry. But my guess is you're probably really not starving. okay? Because you have had a meal and you can remember your last meal and... 
and all those things. But I want you to, to think with me for just a moment. I want you to think about a time that, that you weren't starving, but maybe a time that you were really, really hungry. All right? And, and you, can, you can be hungry. I, we, don't, we don't bother, we don't have a problem with our kids saying they're hungry. But, uh, but I want you to think with me for just a time when you were really, really hungry. All right? For some of you, that time is right now because you, you lost an hour and you didn't get breakfast this morning. I understand that, all right? For some of you, it may have been last night before you went to bed. For some of you, you're on a, a dieting kick, and, and so like, you are constantly hungry. And For some of you, it's, maybe it's time when you were a kid and you, you did have to go without. And For some of us, we all have these times when we remember being hungry or really, really hungry, all right? So I want you to just think about that for, for a moment. Just, just kind of hold that in your head. And, and when you have that moment, just kind of hold it there for just a second. I want you to think about what that felt like to hunger after something, to really desire something. All right? Now we're going we're gonna to take it, we're going to imagine that you're in this moment and, and you are really hungry. And then I want you to, to picture with me that whoever you're with, whether it's a parent or a grandparent or maybe just a friend of yours that you considered a friend, what if in that moment you look at him like, man, I am. I'm starving. Then they look at you like, you're not starving. You're hungry. You're not starving, right? So just play along like you're my kids for a moment. And then what if in that moment you were really, really hungry, and then they decide to help you out? So whoever you're with, parents, grandparents, friend, whatever, they're going to help you out. And so they pull out their phone, and they pull out something, and they start showing you pictures of food. I'm, I'm not talking about like a bag of chips. I'm talking like good food, like the food that you get on special occasions or, or like the, the, your favorite food from your favorite restaurant, right? And some of you are like, dude, I don't even like you talking about it right now, right? I see it in your eyes. And so they, they start showing you these pictures and, and then they, they flip over to another picture and there's this, this steak on this picture that is just beautiful, and it is cooked however you like it, whether you like it mooing or, or not mooing, whether you like it actually cooked like the rest of us do. I don't know how you like your steak. But, man, they show you this picture, and it is just the most beautiful steak you've ever seen. And the, the sides are just beautiful. And, and you're just sitting there looking at these pictures. And then there's another picture of your second favorite dish. And then they bring out the dessert pictures. And there's all these beautiful pictures of all these amazing desserts. And you're just like, dude, this is, this is so wrong. Like, this is not helping at all. And so I dare to say that none of us would look at those pictures and be like, you know what, that, that was what, exactly what I needed right there. That hit the spot. Thank you so much for showing me pictures of what I really want without actually giving me what I want. I don't, I don't imagine any of us that we looked at those pictures and suddenly our stomach stops growling. None of us are like, man, I was hungry, but now I'm just so full and so content, I don't even have to worry about it anymore. Now I want you to take it a step further. What if they just didn't show you pictures... But what if they brought out this, this cookbook? Now, some of you don't even know what a cookbook is, but we have cookbooks in our house. Um, but what if they gave you a cookbook that not just had pictures in it, but it had detailed instructions of how to make the food that you really were craving? And so now not only do you have pictures of it, but you have step-by-step -step instructions of how to make what you are really wanting. Now, I'm wondering how many of you would look at that cookbook, you'd start flipping through that cookbook and be like, oh man, this sounds great, this is wonderful, oh, this is so satisfying to me right now. In fact, I am so full just by reading this cookbook that, that I'm so content, I'm so satisfied, I'm, I'm, I'm just over, I mean, I'm, I'm over abundantly full just by looking and reading this cookbook. In fact, I'm so full and content just by reading this cookbook, I don't, I've got to close the cover because even reading about an egg and mixing an egg right now is just going to make me sick. I'm just that full. Probably none of us, right? 
None of us are going to get satisfied. None of us are going to get what we want or what we need by reading a cookbook instead of actually getting the substance, right? We're not going to reach satisfaction by looking at pictures of food or reading about food when the food itself is what brings us the satisfaction and not the pictures of it. It's in Hebrews chapter 10. That's what he tells us is the problem with the law and with the Old Testament and with the sacrifices of the Old Testament. That they were never meant to be the real thing. They were never meant to be the substance that you were craving for. What they were meant to do was make you hungry for something else because they are simply just unsatisfying shadows of what is real. They were images and they were pictures, kind of like that food that we just talked about, that you want something, that you are craving something. And so there are these pictures that are there, and they're beautiful pictures, and they're great pictures, but according to the writer of Hebrews, these pictures of the Old Testament sacrifice are exactly this problem. There are these unsatisfying shadows, and they were meant to point you to something else. In Hebrews chapter 10 the writer kind of shifts. He's been talking about the superiority of, of Christ's priesthood. And then he goes to this sacrifice of Christ and how it is superior. And, and how the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is superior and supreme to everything else. It is sufficient to accomplish what you're trying to do when you try to reach God. And so the first part of this chapter, he really sets up this contrast between the law and the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And then what is compared to Christ. And he sets this up in kind of these back and forth um, kind of things, and he kind of introduced you, kind of gives you the downfalls of the old system of the animal sacrifices, and then the upside of the Christ sacrifice. And so, as we work through this chapter, we're going to kind of ping back and forth. We're going to look at the start of it, and then see how Christ satisfies that. We're going to look at the shortfall of the the old system, and then how Christ sacrifices or, 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 or makes that sufficient and complete and superior to what they were telling us. So he starts us off in the very first verse, and this is where he introduces this idea that it's an un satisfying uh, shadow of what is to come. He tells us in verse 1, I want you to look there with me. He says, Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of those realities, it can never perfect the worshiper. And we're going to stop there and we're going to come back to the rest of that verse in just a minute, but I want to make sure that we understand this part. He says the law and the Old Testament and all the rules and all the regulations, that was never meant to be all there was. It was never meant to be the main thing. It was only a shadow of something that was to come. It was only a shadow to show you there is something better than that. And he used this word shadow back in chapter 8 verse 5 when he was talking about the tabernacle. And he says that was a shadow. It was a picture it was an image of the heavenly tabernacle that we're going to spend all of eternity in. But don't focus on the shadow because the shadow doesn't have existence on its own. The shadow doesn't have the substance that you're looking for. It's just an image or a picture and it really has no substance to it whatsoever. It cannot exist on its own. It cannot satisfy you on your own. Once you remember when you were kids and you were walking with somebody on a sunny day and the sun was shining behind you and, and maybe you didn't do this, maybe it's just me that I did this when I was a kid, but I used to think it was so funny to be able to step on people's shadows. All right? or, or you could even like punch their shadow. All right? And I don't know why I thought that was cool or funny as a kid, but it was just kind of entertaining that, that you could just be walking along and all of a sudden be like, boom, gotcha. But you know, when I did that, the person never fell over or like I could even like, like punch their shadow and the person like never fell over, they never like fell down and never ravished in pain. None of that. You know why? Because they didn't feel anything. What I did was I punched something that wasn't real. 
And, and I didn't really expect it to have any effects. Why? Because there's no substance to this shadow. I just really punched the air. I stepped on the, the ground. I didn't do anything to what actually had substance. There's the shadow, but there's no substance to it. The substance is not the shadow. It's the person that makes the shadow. The shadow only points us to the person that makes that shadow. You see, understand this is what the writer is trying to get us to, to wrap our minds around. He says, the law was never meant to sustain you or to satisfy you. It was never meant to be the substance. It was only meant to point you to the substance, to point you to the person making the shadow, the real thing. And then verse 5, he tells us where the real thing is. And so in verse 5, he introduces us to the, the shadow maker. In verse 5, he says, therefore... As he, talking about Jesus, was coming into the world, he said, You did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. And so now we have a body. Now we have a real object. Now we have a substance that, that what made the shadow. Now we have a person that the shadow has been pointing us to. And, and now we can leave the unsatisfying shadows behind and we can come to the person of Christ where we can find satisfaction. We can come to the actual substance itself. We can come to the place where there's contentment and completion. We can come to the satisfaction of Christ that Christ alone has to offer. You see, this is the satisfaction that he's talking about in John chapter 4 when he He's talking to the woman at the well, and he says, listen, anybody who drinks this water, in John chapter 4, verse 13, he says, anybody who drinks this water will thirst again. It's just a shadow. It's not fulfilling. It's not satisfying. And then he goes on in verse 14, he says, but, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never thirst again, ever in fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Do you understand what this means for you and me? There is one place of satisfaction, and it is in Christ, and in Christ alone. It is not in the shadows. And so what does this mean for you and me? And we're going to do this as we go back and forth through all of these things. What does this look like for you and for me? It's beautiful because for some of us sitting in here this morning, we need to stop chasing shadows that are unsatisfying. For you and for me, it means that we need to listen carefully for just a moment. We need to stop chasing things that we think are going to point us to Christ and actually come to Christ Himself. You see, everything we do in this building, whether it be music from the stage or me standing here speaking to you or the Bible studies that happened just a few moments ago, Awana that will happen on Wednesday night, youth upward, everything that we do here has one purpose. It is to point you to Jesus Christ. Everything we do here, I'm going to be honest with you, I love it all and it's all good stuff, but it's only just a shadow. And if we're not careful, we end up worshiping a shadow and, and attending all this good stuff, but we lose Him in the process. And so for some of us, we need to become satisfied worshipers, not of the stuff, but of Him. We need to become satisfied worshipers and stop settling for the shadows and come to the body that makes the shadow because that's the only place we're going to find the substance that will satisfy us. Stop settling for the water and the shadows that are just going to make you desire something more. Stop looking at the pictures of Christ. They're just going to make you more hungry for Him. Come to Him. You see, how do we know that He has the substance to satisfy us? Because He had the substance enough to satisfy God when He sacrificed just one time. That's all it took. Have you ever noticed the, the biggest events of your life the ones that we celebrate the most 
are usually those one-time events. Those big things that, that we, we do one time, and they have such a significant impact, such a, such a life-changing impact, that we just do them one time and we celebrate them. The biggest things in your life that you celebrate happen just one time. For example, graduation, high school graduation. That's a big deal. We should celebrate that. And, and, and different people do it different ways. We had family that would come together. We, I had family from West Virginia. came all the way from West Virginia to watch me graduate high school. Why? Because not many people in West Virginia graduate high school. And so this was a big deal, okay? All right, so we celebrated that, all right? And I'm sorry for you West Virginians. I know it's true, all right? But we celebrate that. But listen, how many times did I graduate high school? Once. We only had one ceremony with me graduating high school, and I only got one diploma when I did it. It was a one-time event. You know what I didn't have to do this morning? I didn't have to drive all the way back to South Stokes and South Stokes High School, walk through the, same, or walk through the, the football field. That's where we had our graduation. At. I didn't walk through that football field and get my diploma. I don't have to do that every single day. I just had to do it one time. And I only got to celebrate it one time. That was it. Right? Think about another big event. Probably one of the biggest events in your life is your wedding day. It's a one-day event. Now, it, it takes a long time to get there. I'm not going to be honest with you, okay? There's a lot of planning and processing that goes into this one event. But it's one day. And it's only one day that, that this, this is such an impactful day. It's such a big event. In fact, apart from you becoming a Christian, apart from you accepting Christ, what happens on your wedding day and who you marry and who stands next to you on your wedding day will impact more in your life than any other decision you make. So don't take it lightly, but it's only one event. It's a one-time thing. This is a big deal, and it only happens one time. See, we don't have to get married every single day to still be married. We just do it one time. Retirement. People have parties for retirement. Co-workers will come by, and they will, they will talk with you, and they will eat cake with you. Your boss will be nicer to you on your retirement day, and he'll say the best things about you on your retirement day. It may be very uncharacteristic of him or her any other time, but one day... It's this huge celebration, this big event, and it doesn't happen every day. Like, I don't know about where you work, but I don't get cake every day where I work. Even when I was working in the school system, there wasn't cake and celebration every day. I didn't get a party just because I showed up for work. Nobody was like, hey, you were here on time today. Good job. Let's celebrate. It didn't happen. But somebody was retiring, and then it was a party. We celebrated that. It was a big event. It was an impactful event. It was this one time that was going to happen, and it only happened once, and then it was done. See, these things are big events, and they should be. We, we could imagine uh, that, that, that we don't repeat these things. I want you to think for just a moment, what would it be like if we did have to repeat those things every year or, or every single day? Like I said, what if, what if every single day you had to go back to where you went to high school or back to where you went to college, and you had to walk across that stage, shake the principal's head, and get your diploma? What if you had to do that every single day? Or even worse, even worse maybe, what if you had to do your wedding every single day that you wanted to remain married? Or maybe even, let's not even do it every day. What if, let's just do it once a year. What if for every anniversary you had to redo your whole wedding? I'm talking the dress, the makeup, the hair, the, the, all of it, the flowers, everything. My first thought when I wrote that down was, I'm betting weddings would be a whole lot simpler and a whole lot cheaper if we had to repeat them over and over and over again, right? Like, like we wouldn't spend thousands of dollars to do that every single day. And, and, we would, and the reason that they, would, they don't happen every day is because they wouldn't be special 
anymore. You see, when you got married, you didn't commit for one year. You committed for all the years. You didn't commit for one year and say, hey, we're going to do this for a year, and then next year we'll do this again, and we'll start this whole process again. When you walked to that aisle, when you got married, you got married for a lifetime, and it's a special wedding day, and this one-time event that seals this relationship from this moment on. This one event is so special, and the commitment is so binding that it doesn't have to be repeated over and over and over again. It's such a significant commitment that one time is sufficient for the rest of your life. Now, I'm not saying you don't have to renew your vows or you can renew your vows. That's totally up to you, so I'm not, I'm not downgrading that. But as far as continuing your relationship with your spouse, you don't have to keep doing the same ritual over and over and over again. You see, but the problem with the sacrifices of the Old Testament is just that. To continue the relationship with God, these same sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over again. I want you to look back with me. In verse 1, and we're actually going to finish the verse this time. It, says, it starts off like this. It says, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of the realities, it can never perfect the worshipers. Now, here's the new part. By the same sacrifices, they continue offering year after year. You see, the sacrifice he's talking about is the day of atonement where the high priest goes into the tabernacle and he goes into the, the Holy of Holies and he commits this sacrifice once a year. And he does this every single year, year after year after year. And the sacrifices, they didn't seal the relationship with God between them and God. It wasn't this one and done kind of deal. It had to be repeated over and over and over again. In fact, in verse 11, he doesn't just say it's a yearly thing. He takes it to all the sacrifices. In verse 11, he says, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sin. You see, the problem wasn't the sacrifices. The problem was the sacrifices became so common they really weren't special anymore. At the height of Jerusalem, at the height of the nation of Israel, there were literally tens of thousands of animals that were sacrificed every single day. Tens of thousands of animals that were sacrificed. And people watched this day after day after day after day. And yet they were in this ritual idea that wasn't changing anything. It wasn't making a difference for them. And so then he goes on in verse 11. And he says, listen, things are different with Jesus. And, or excuse me, in verse 12. In verse 12 he says, but this man... This Jesus, this priest is different. This man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because his work is finished, because there's no more sacrifices to carry out. And we've talked about this idea of him sitting down and sitting at the right hand of God. You see, Jesus makes this sufficient sacrifice that has such a lasting sacrifice that it's a one-time thing, and it never has to be repeated at this moment. And so what he does is in this one moment, he seals the relationship between God and man. He seals this commitment that doesn't have to be repeated through ritual over and over and over again. What he accomplishes in this one moment changes all of eternity, which an eternity of sacrifices with animals couldn't change one day. And so what does this do for us? I mean, it becomes we become satisfied worshipers who, get this, are constantly overwhelmed by the sufficient sacrifice of Christ. You see, the problem wasn't the sacrifices. The problem was that the sacrifices lost their meaning. They just became a ritual. 
They just became what we do, and they just became what we saw every single day, over and over and over again. And so the challenge to you and to me is to be a, a, a satisfied worshiper who is constantly overwhelmed by the sufficient sacrifice of Christ, to be constantly overwhelmed by the power of the cross, and to never let it become just another symbol for us, to never let it become just another ritual for us, to never let it become just another piece of art that we hang on the wall or we wear around our necks or on a t-shirt. You see, when we look at the cross and we forget this is the ultimate sacrifice. When we look at the cross and say, this is what it took for me to become clean. This is the sacrifice that was sufficient for me. Then we became just like the Israelites who sacrificed over and over and over again. So we must become satisfied worshipers who are constantly overwhelmed by the power of the cross and the sufficient sacrifice that happened on it. See, the cross has to retain its significance for us because it's the only place that we find finished forgiveness. And that's the third thing that makes his sacrifice sufficient. It accomplishes for us what the animal sacrifices could not do. Accomplish for us complete forgiveness. I want you to look with me in verse 4. He makes this very clear in verse 4 that there are things that the old system cannot do. In verse 4 it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That word impossible means to lack strength or an ability to do something. And it's a very strong word because it literally means impossible. It doesn't mean that if you, you can possibly do it. It doesn't mean that if you got enough blood of, of bulls and goats together that they might could do it. It doesn't mean there's a possibility down the road this is going to happen. It means it is 100% impossible to do this. In fact, we know it's impossible because he's used this word before back in chapter 8. I believe, let me check my, yeah, um, back in chapter, excuse me, verse, chapter 6, verse 18, because in that verse he said, it is impossible for God to lie, which means it cannot happen. And so we love that verse, it is impossible for God to lie, and listen, it's the same word here in chapter 10 as it was in chapter 6, and so if it's impossible for God to lie, it means there's no possibility that's happened, it's never going to happen, there's, there's no chance of it happening, it's the same thing here in chapter 10, there's no possibility the blood of these sacrifices is going to take away sin. It's not, let's get enough of them together. Let's not pull our resources together. It's never going to happen. It is impossible by all meaning stretches of the word. So the, bull, the blood of the bulls and the goats cannot take away sins. They can't do it. They, you simply can't get enough of them together. Their sacrifice is not strong enough. It doesn't matter how many of you are. It doesn't matter what time you do it. It is simply impossible. Forgiveness does not come, cannot come through the blood of bulls, goats, or any other animal that you want to put on. On that altar. Right? So why do they do them? Why is it that they had this system in place? You see, in, in chapter three, it told, or excuse me, in verse three, it told us that they acted as a reminder. These sacrifices reminded the people of their sin and it reminded them of the cost of their sin. But it also did something else. It also delayed God's judgment and God's punishment for them. You see, for them, what a sacrifice did was it covered over sin. It didn't take sin away. It threw a blanket or a rug over the sin, but it didn't take it away. And so there's this short time that, that allowed kind of this delay of God's judgment and God's wrath, and they just covered over it so that He overlooked it until next year or until the next sacrifice. And, and they're still there. They're still worthy of punishment, and those sins are still worthy of judgment, but they're just delayed for some time. But the sacrifice of Christ is completely different. He doesn't just cover over sin. It takes it away. 
So he does what the blood of bulls and goats cannot do. He offers forgiveness. I want you to look with me all the way down to verse 17. In verse 17, he's quoting Jeremiah. And he says that he added, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless act. Did you hear that? I will never again remember. This is the all-seeing God. This is the all-knowing God. This is the omniscient God of the universe who knows everything, and sees everything, and yet He's chosen to forget our sins. He's chosen to not just overlook them, but to completely erase them from His memory. He, he knows everything, and yet He chooses to forgive, and He chooses not to remember our sins. Why? Because the judgment for them has already play, taken place. He, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when we preach Christ crucified, then all of our sins are crucified with Him. All of our sins are taken care of in that moment. There is no more judgment. There is no more punishment to be dealt with. It's all taken care of on Him. Our sins are transferred to him and they're all dealt with and so in God's mind those sins never happened they're erased completely from the memory of God it's the one thing that I'm thankful that God doesn't know is my sins it's the one thing that I'm thankful that God willingly and and and, and, and ideally he forgets and so then we go on in verse 18 he says now where there is forgiveness for these there is no longer an offering for sin. You see, if sin is forgiven, it's like it never happened. If sin never happened, there's no need to sacrifice for it again. And so there's no need for these offerings to take place. What he's telling the people in the first century is, listen, you put your faith and trust in Christ. Christ took away all your sins. They're all gone. They're not just covered over. They're all gone. You don't have to go back and commit these same sacrifices. You don't have to go back to the altar tomorrow and do what you were doing before because it's already taken care of. And then the next day when you sin, you don't have to go back again because it was all dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's all taken care of. You don't have to keep going back and doing the same thing over and over and over. Your relationship with God was sealed not in the sacrifice, but in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean for you and me? It, mean become, it means that we become satisfied worshipers who are constantly overwhelmed by the cross, but it means that we stop remembering what God has forgotten and what God has forgiven. See, there's some of us sitting in this room and some of us that are watching online right now, that we are living in a past and we are carrying around guilt and we're carrying around regret for sins that have already been forgiven. And for some of us, it's causing us to try to make up for these sins in one way or another. Yeah, we became a Christian. We, we became part of the church. And yeah, we're thankful and we're grateful for the cross. But for some of us, we're just so haunted by these sins of the past that we're doing everything now because we're, we're trying to make up for all of that stuff. We're trying to, to, to supplement the cross of Jesus Christ because, yeah, we did some terrible things. We did some bad things. And for some of us sitting in this room, for some of us watching online, we know how bad we are. We know how miserable we were. We know all the sins that we did. We, we can recount how terrible we were, not just in the eyes of God, but really in the eyes of everybody that was around us. And for some of us, we have this past, and this past is haunting us. And we are even now, to this day, trying to make up for a past. Guess what? The Word says the past is forgotten. It is gone. He doesn't even remember it. And so you and I, being satisfied worshipers, we need to quit remembering what God has forgotten. One of the most powerful things that Satan tries to do is come and tap you on the shoulder and look at you and be like, I can't believe you think God would love you. He knows what you did. He's seen all the stuff that you think nobody else saw. He, he's seen all the things that you have hidden. He knows all the times that you did this and that. And, and you are just so sinned and so stained. There is no way 
that God can love you. There is no way that God, even if He did love you, He would ever use you. There's no way that God would ever take somebody like you back after all the times over and over and over again. He's going to tell you that you are unlovable, that you are unforgivable, that you are unqualified. And, and you're going to relive your past over and over and over again. And I wanted you to listen to me. Stop reliving a past that God has chosen to forget. Stop reminding God of the things that He has chosen not to remember. Now listen, I, I, I don't want you to hear that, that we don't need to remember our sins because we do. But I want you to simply hear this. We don't need to be controlled by the sins of our past. I don't know who said it, but I love the saying that when Satan reminds you of his past or your past, all you have to do is remind him of his future. We finished our Wednesday night study, uh, our, our, our end time study class this past Wednesday, and we got to the final defeat of Satan. And I want you to understand that when Satan is defeated, he is cast into the abyss. He's cast into the lake of fire. He's cast into hell. And it says that he is there to be tormented. Day after day after day, day and night. Understand that when hell is his reality, and it is true, but Satan is not the ruler of hell. He is tormented in hell over and over and over. And so what he's trying to do is make you as miserable as he's going to be one day. And so when he reminds you of your sins, remind him of his future, because guess what? For him, there is no redemption. For him, there is no forgiveness. There is no grace. There is for you and me. And so we accept Christ. We live in that forgiveness. We live in that grace. And he doesn't get it. And so he has this eternity of being tormented day and night, day and night for all of eternity. And when he brings up your past, remind him of his future because his future is all he has to look forward to. His future, he knows he is defeated. He knows where he's going to spend eternity. And so what he's trying to get you to do is just be miserable in the time that he can make you miserable. Don't listen to him. Be a satisfied worshiper of God and stop remembering the things that God has chosen to forget and forgive. But I want you to listen to me. There's one last thing. Because not only is this sacrifice provide us with for finished forgiveness, but it produces something else in us. It produces this submissive sanctification. See, the author of Hebrews, he, he turns the Old Testament time after time after time again. And uh, I was sitting with a group of pastors and and, and oddly enough, we were sitting there with this group of men that I look up to and I respect. And uh, from all different churches, some of them in Davie County, some of them in Iredale County. And uh, it was, it's really kind of odd, God working all this together. Because as we're sitting there, I, I'm listening to all these guys talking. And this guy is, is going through Hebrews on Wednesday night with his Bible study group. And this guy is over here and he's, he's preaching in the book of Hebrews on Sunday night with his group. And they're like, what about you? And I'm like, well... Oddly enough, I'm preaching Hebrews on Sunday morning with my church. And like, whoa, that's big time right there. And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, Hebrews is such a hard book to preach on a Sunday morning because we are so far removed from it. Because we're not first century Jews. And he said, and the guy that's doing it on Wednesday night with his Bible, he said, he said I just don't have time in a sermon to, to explain the Old Testament significance of the book of Hebrews. And I said, well, it's just because you don't have good listeners and you don't preach long enough. Quit preaching for 20 minutes, give them a 45-minute sermon, and they'll be good to go, right? Or maybe 50 minutes. Some of you are, are glutton for punishment. You're just going to keep hanging around. But listen, there is so much Old Testament here because he's writing to people who lived and grew up with the Old Testament as their religion. And so he points in this section to several quotes. And in chapters or verses 5 and 6, 
In verse 7, he points them back to Psalm 40. And he says, listen, he, God's not excited about these offerings in the first place. In fact, he says in verse 5, he says, Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You did not want sacrifices and obedience, but you prepared a body for me. He goes on in verse 6. He says, You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin or, yeah, and sin offerings. You did not delight in the sacrifices. This is not what you wanted. In fact, it's a beautiful idea because when he says that you did not delight, the Greek word there that he uses is the exact same Greek word that we see at the beginning of the Gospels when Jesus is being baptized and he's coming up out of the water and he says, This is my son. In him I am well pleased. In him I delight. You see, the delight of God is not in sacrifices that make up for disobedience or try to cover up disobedience. The delight of God is when we willfully submit to the will of God. It is when we give ourselves in obedience to Him. It's not when we try to make up for, for not listening in the first place. It's when we listen in the first place. We tell our kids all the time that, listen, you will, if you try to cover up something that you did, you will get more trouble than if you just told us and were honest in the first place. But you know how you get in less trouble? Not doing it in the first place. I don't know about you, but we've got some kids that occasionally, uh, they, they will get a little loud with each other. And they'll get a little argumentative with each other. Right? And I'm guessing that if you have more than one kid in your house, you probably have the same issue. If not, we need to talk. Uh, because either you're deaf or you, you need to help me understand how this doesn't happen in your house. All right? But but we have these kids that they get a little argumentative. And so what we tell them, instead of reaching this point where you want to argue, then why don't you just listen to each other in the first place? Instead of getting in trouble by doing something you know you're not supposed to do, why don't you just listen to what we tell you in the first place? Listen, everybody in this house will be happier if you just listen and obey rather than feeling sorry for it and trying to make up for it or trying to cover it up later. Just listen the first time. And that's what he's telling us in this passage, that God doesn't delight when we choose not to listen to him, and then we try to cover up our sins, and we try to make up for our sins. What he delights in is when we choose to be obedient in the first place, when we choose to be submissive to him in the first place. And when we do that, it produces sanctification for us. And sanctification is this big fancy word that means we are set aside, we are set apart for his service. We see it in verse 14. He says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. He has set us apart. He has set us apart for His service. It means that we are different than the rest of the world. Now, I've got to tell you this. You need to be okay with being different from the rest of the world. We need to be okay for standing apart and standing out. We need to be okay for being different because the difference that people see in our life is what will point people either to the, sac to the shadow or to the sacrifice. The difference that people see in our life will be the testimony. It will be the Bible that people read. We need to be okay with being different than what this world has to offer because I've seen what this world has to offer. And i got to be honest with you, I don't want any part of it. I don't want my kids to have any part of it because it's even worse than the unsatisfying shadows. We are sanctified. We are set apart for His service. 
In verse 16, he goes on to say, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws on their heart and I will write them on their mind. You see, his word becomes the word that is written on our hearts and our mind. It means that we are submitting everything to his words, our thoughts, our emotions, our actions. Everything is submissive to his word and to his will. It is the direction and the standard by which we judge everything else. It is the standard by which we judge those big events of high school graduation. The standard by which we judge who we should marry. The standard by which we judge how and when we should retire and how we should live out the rest of our life. It's the standard of what we do with our life. And so what do we do with this passage? We become sanctified, satisfied worshipers who are constantly overwhelmed by the cross, who stop remembering what Christ has forgotten. And we stop living with regret and pain in the past, and we start living on mission for Him. We become submissive, subjective, sanctified to Him, and we stop living with past regret, and we stop living with the words that Satan said, you can't be good enough, and you can't do it, and you're unqualified. And we say, listen, Christ has set me apart. I am perfected, and I am sanctified, and I am different than the rest of the world. And because of His sufficient sacrifice, I will go out in this world, not living in the past, but from this moment on, I will live on mission to be different. And I'll use my difference to point everybody to the sacrifice that made it possible for you and for me. It will be the desire of our hearts and the attitude of gratitude that runs through the rest of our life. And we will stand and we'll sing, we'll sit and we'll listen and we will do everything not out of obligation to a law, but out of gratitude of our hearts because we have been perfected and we have been sanctified. We have been set apart, saved to the uttermost by a God who loved us enough to send His Son to step out of heaven Himself, to walk on filthy streets, to be hung on a cross. And even in that humiliation to be spit on, cursed at, yelled at, insulted. And he could have stopped it all. But he didn't. Why? Because our salvation depended on it. Because it is the only way that we will ever find finished forgiveness. It is the only way that we can become submissively sanctified. It is the only sacrifice that is sufficient to take away every sin that ever existed in our life. And so we preach Christ. But we preach Christ crucified. So that we can become sanctified, satisfied worshipers of God who are constantly overwhelmed by the cross and we stop remembering what God has chosen to forget and forgive. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much.